Hi, I'm your host, Dr. Jennifer R. Levin, and I'm a traumatic grief therapist and founder of Therapy Heals, where we help organizations and individuals prepare and heal from sudden or unexpected death. And in my podcast, Untethered, Healing the Pain from Sudden Death, I share resources and stories to help you go from the chaos of sudden or unexpected death to move towards healing in your life. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Untethered, Healing the Pain from a Sudden Death. I'm Dr. Jennifer Levin, and I specialize in traumatic death and helping individuals through the struggles, pain, trauma, and chaos of an unexpected death. In today's interview, I talk with Dan Baker, whose wife died suddenly on the day he retired from his career in law enforcement. During our interview, we explore Dan's struggle to cope with two major life stressors, the death of a spouse and retirement at the same time and the impact it had on his identity. We also examine what it was like for him to live with unanswered questions and uncertainty after his wife died. Finally, Dan shares the experiences he had participating in a spousal grief group to help him cope and process his wife's death. He also talks about the strong bond and intimate friendships he developed with some of the group members that he now considers to be part of his family. Well, hi, Dan, and thank you so much for agreeing to spend time with me today for our podcast interview. And um, I'd like to start off and ask you to introduce yourself. Okay, well, I'm Dan, obviously, since that's what you called me. (laughs) I'm a (laughs) grandfather of seven grandchildren and um, retired, as you know. I was married uh, to Kathy for approximately 27 years when uh, she died. I was a prosecutor uh, for most of my career. And the last few years, I was uh, a chief deputy for an oversight agency of a law enforcement agency. Okay. Okay. Um, Hobbies, interests, things outside of work? Well, I'm one of those people that they make fun of all the time on TV shows. You know, never go by close to the guys that play with trains because <laughs> I have trains. And notwithstanding that, I've managed to meet um, Kathy and maintain a long-term relationship, which I think was healthy, and uh, live kind of a normal life in the courtroom and in the uh, public arena. So everything you heard about people that like trains, don't believe it all. Okay. Um, how long did you work for? I, I think you recently retired. I did. I retired in 2020, so three years ago. I've gone back on a consulting basis to the local prosecutor's office um, periodically for actually mostly to keep myself occupied. I don't know. I was there. I was since 93. 93. Okay. It was a second career for me. I had been in the railroad for a number of years and went to law school in my late 30s, early 40s, and uh, then went to the prosecutor's office. Ah, railroad connection to trains. I just made that. <laughs> oh, you did? Yeah. 
<laughs> Things that happens. <laughs> okay. So um, tell us a little bit about retirement or kind of what happened when you actually ended work. Well, I had, you know, the last year of work was COVID. So it was a very difficult year, not just personally, but also professionally. Most of my staff, I had a staff of approximately 35 to 40 people, um, professionals, and we were working remotely. And I was the only one in the office, literally. So, and it was weird. And one of the oversight things that I had oversight over was the skilled nursing facilities in Los Angeles County and how they were handling the COVID crisis. In fact, this is when we knew nothing about it. You know, we didn't know who would die, who wouldn't, just a lot of things we didn't know. So anyway, so I finally decided to retire um, a couple years overdue and had set a date and we were working on my remote. I wasn't, but Kathy and my friends at work were behind my back working on my retirement party. And my last day was on February 8th, 2020. And when I came home from work that day, Kathy was, I found Kathy dead on the uh, love seat in our den. So that's, that's how my retirement went, started. That is um, unimaginable. I mean, not only to, for anybody who comes home and finds somebody they love suddenly um, no longer living, but the fact that that was your last day of work. I can't even imagine what went through your mind. Well, a lot of things. And I, you know, it was particularly difficult because I just seen her that morning. I knew it was the last day. And I was winding a lot of things up. I had to study, I had to post on our website that had been, it was a five year analysis of, of, um, of some issues with the department. So I wasn't really, I didn't go to work early that day. I went to work quite late for me and I went and saw Kathy before I, like I did. Um, around 10 o'clock or so in the morning. I don't know what time. Anyway, in the morning. And she was alive. She was well. And we talked a little bit. But, you know, we were socially distancing because of it was COVID. She'd been vaccinated. She did volunteer work for Planned Parenthood. So was eligible for vaccination. I wasn't yet eligible for vaccination because I wasn't working in a in a medical position. So we were kind of keeping our distance from one another. And I remember thinking, and I don't know if this is my memory now or, but I do recall thinking, thinking, you know, for 27 years, you know, we hugged and kissed and said goodbye when we left. But that day we didn't. I just saw her and we just smiled at each other. I said, see you later and walked out the door. And that was the last time. Yeah. Retirement and and the death of a spouse are probably two of the greatest life stressors um, that someone can face uh, for very different reasons. Obviously, the death of a spouse and the sudden death of a spouse, uh, devastating and traumatic and retirement, you know, something you think is positive, but also comes with a lot of stress. How did you even begin 
to cope with grief early on? Well, I'm not sure I remember telling you I coped with it. <laughs> I, I was not doing very well at all. Um, you know, I was a mess. Yeah. I, um, I literally walked usually maybe, I don't know, 15, 20,000 steps a day inside my house, just walking back and forth. Um, I couldn't think I couldn't quite grasp what was going on. Um, yeah, I'm not sure I coped very well at all. Um, you know, especially under the circumstances, it was just, um, yeah, I don't think I coped. I just, I survived. My kids stayed with me. I, I have three grown children and they took turns coming and staying with me. Um, which helped not so much because they were a comfort because, you know, what kind of comfort could they give me with, you know, Kathy having died, but they kept me from, I knew I couldn't act crazy in front of my kids. So it kind of kept me um, not doing crazy things. Not, I think, not that I, I don't know what I would have done anyway. I, I didn't know what to do. That's yeah. why I paced, I guess. You paced. Yeah. Sounds like the kids kind of almost served as like a containment for you. Pretty much. Yeah. I think that yeah. was it. Yeah. Um, you mentioned that we have worked together. Um, and I remember that there were so many um, unknown circumstances regarding your wife's death um, in the beginning. What was that like for you? Well, it was hard. And, and I don't know. Sometimes I think, and just thinking lately, I was wondering if that was a good thing, but probably not. But I, it sure took the focus off of the magnitude of the loss in some ways, mm -hmm. um, because I, I did not know um, how, how she died, how it came to be. Um, you know, when I found her, she s seemed to be okay in terms of you know her body was intact she's just laying there like she was relaxing and she had been having some dizzy issues and she'd had some not life-threatening health issues but she'd had issues where she was falling and feeling faint so i thought initially that maybe she just passed out and i i don't know what i thought but somehow i thought she died of natural causes and after my wife um where my daughter came down when I called her after I called the paramedics um I was just sitting in the garage waiting for them to basically declare her dead and the, one of the policemen came and said she'd been stabbed to death so which took me by surprise I mean it was a total shock so I, there was no blood and as a prosecutor I've done I've been let alone been involved in over a hundred and some cases in which I've been actually at the homicide scene. And I know what a homicide scene looks like, and it did not look like a homicide scene. And it did not look like a stabbing, particularly to the head where there's normally a great deal of blood loss because there just wasn't any visible. So that shocked me. And so then, you know, the homicide detectives came and because of my work, I knew most of them, actually. I knew 
with the exception of the local police department, I knew most of the people that arrived, most of the people involved in the investigation. I mean, I, I had worked with them before. So then, after a few days of thinking, you know, it was probably a homicide, you know, they let me know that they did not think it was a homicide, and they were now looking more at a suicide, and um, which even shocked me more. Because, you know, the thoughts that were going through my head were like, gee, if I'd gone over and hugged her and kissed her that morning, would she have not had those feelings that led her to, you know, if she did kill herself, kill herself or whatever. So those were all the kinds of thoughts going through my head. Plus the fact that as the husband, I knew um, I was the primary suspect if there was, it was in fact a stabbing. Um, so. Just all those things all together, all at once, just piling up and just um, made it particularly difficult. The other thing, you know, and the police do not treat you well in investigations. And I, I am thankful for my experience. I can't imagine if someone who did not have my experience went through that because I know I knew their procedures, I knew their policies, I knew their practices, I knew why they were doing everything they did, including the way they talked to me, the way they talked to my family members, the way, just the way they went about doing things. And the police are not your friends, they're not pleasant. And when I say not your friends, I mean they're not friends who are there to give you support and comfort, they're there to find out what happened and that's it, that's what they really care about. So. Um, but they also only care about it if it's within certain constraints. They care about it if it's homicide, if there's been a crime com committed. If there's no crime, they're no longer interested. So the police, once they decided it was not a homicide, um, pretty much quickly lost interest in how she died. But that didn't help me. Um, by the way, she died of a subarachnoid hemorrhage, in the, a hemorrhage in the brain. Um, the the tissue around the uh, outer part of her brain had um, been punctured, one puncture wound, very small one, but it had just caused her to bleed in her cranial cavity, and that's what she that's from what that's what she died from. So once the police lost interest, you know, I of course wanted to know if it was suicide, if it was homicide, what it was, and. Like I said, once they decided it wasn't homicide, their investigation was done. So I went so far as um, we were going to cremate her, and I did not. Instead, I had her body preserved and had a burial in the event that we might want to exhume her. And I also uh, hired a pathologist from a prominent local hospital here in the county to um, to go over her autopsy report to see if that would be worthwhile and what he, what could be said about the way she died. And we really don't have any answers other than, you know, 100% is most likely an accident, um, just a very a freak accident. Um, she, that very morning, had ordered all kinds of stuff. She was a avid shopper, but from drugs to cat toys to all kinds of things. Her calendar was full. 
she'd been planning my retirement party for which was to take place the following Thursday so there were no indications of suicide at all so but those anyway I spoke way too much those are the things that were all going through my head in the early stages and I don't know if I also mentioned to you that um she kept her maiden name when we got married because she had her professional career aside from my own so um the police did not list me as a next of kin. The next day I had to go down to the mortuary and the coroner's office and identify her body in order to be classified as her husband and have all of the notifications sent to me and the property returned to me. And um, that was during COVID. So getting inside, I mean, just, it, it was just, like I said, I didn't, I don't know. I don't even know now how, <laughs> how or what I did but um anyway so those are the kinds of things that were going on wow I mean so many things going through my mind just listening to you talk about that um number one I mean with your experience first of all thank you for sharing all of that but with your experience you're very savvy with the system and um I'm curious do you think your experience um, helped you um, or made it harder for you? Well, in some ways, it helped me. And I'll, you know, trying to be positive, I'll just stay with that. It helped me in that I did not take personally. I was able to not take so personally what was going on. So, you know, the police would not share information with me. They would not let me see her body when they removed the body from our house. They would not, you know, a lot of things that were happening but I knew why they were happening. So that I did not take personally. Um, things that did, that made it more difficult were, I knew that, you know, there's some office somewhere where there's a bunch of police officers sitting around talking about me as a suspect, as someone who might be responsible. And that everything I did was being watched and that everything I did was being recorded. Um, you know, they took her phone, they took her computer when I asked for them back. You know, I, I was I was aware that they had copies of that. I knew that they had everything about our personal life that anyone could ever possibly hope to have because they had all this information. So that wasn't very comfortable, you yeah. know, that at all. Um, but um, and, you know, that sense of people watching you in that sense. Uh, you know, was, was the downside of it. So. Yeah. We started off talking about living with the unknown. And as you were, you know, going through all the possible causes of what happened, the emotional roller coaster that you must've been on. Um, and, you know, is just unbelievable. Um, and like, it, it was interesting to hear you say, you know, when this section of the police is done with you, you know, they're done, but the emotions in your mind aren't done. The thoughts no. of the mind, you're left with those, you know, okay, it's no longer a homicide, that's done, but you're still dealing with the aftermath of all of that. You're still processing all of that. You know, is it a suicide? You're still dealing with all of that. Um, 
do you want to say anything more about what that emotional roller coaster was like for you? Well, I I can. It's I don't know that I can be consistent in what I say because in many ways that roller coaster still goes on. I mean, sure, I I mean I we I had the forensic pathologist look at the autopsy report, give me his opinion. I had a talk to a psychiatrist including her psychiatrist about what was going on with her. Um, Cause she, like I said, she had significant health issues that affected her quality of life, but not necessarily the duration of her life. So, um, but even still to this day, there are times when I, I wonder, you know, the question, the question just isn't answered. So it always leaves that room, you know, at two o'clock in the morning, three o'clock in the morning, or at the most random moment, you know, I can just hear someone talking about something or whatever that just raises the specter. I wonder, I wonder if, I wonder what happened. Yeah. You know, and I still do think a lot, um, particularly since I wasn't there and I probably could have been, um, you know, what really happened those last moments. Um, and, you know, I have some friends that I talked to. Um, and we were just talking, we had dinner Monday night and we were talking about reframing mm. our spouse's death, you know, and we were talking about, um, well, anyway, just, I don't even know where I was going with that other than to say, what could I have done? What could have my presence done? Um, I, you know, probably nothing, I, but it still comes up. Yeah. It still comes up. Yeah. I mean, you find ways to live with the uncertainty, but I'm hearing you say the presence of uncertainty still does exist after all of this time. Well, very much so. Yeah. Speaking of your friends, um, I know as part of your healing <laughs> that you did attend a grief support group. Can you share what that was like for you? Well, sure. I mean, um, at first, well, I'll, I'll just say this. I attended the grief support group and um, I had decided before I made a decision whether I was going to stay or leave that group, I would at least go to three, three meetings. Okay. So I stuck it out for three. Okay. And it turned out to be in a real lifesaver for me. Um, uh, I'd been in probably, I don't know. I, the only grief, the only support group I'd ever been in before was Al-Anon dealing with some issues with, uh, with some of my children, but, um, which really weren't that severe. So this was my real only experience in a support group. This group was good for me in one sense in that everyone in the group had experienced a traumatic loss. They were like me. They were, they, uh, they found their spouse either died in their presence or they were, they found their spouse dead unexpectedly, um, you know, in their home. So, um, you know, so we were kindred, kindred spirits, so to speak, in that way. What was the group like? Male, female, age range? Well, it was almost. Ex 
I don't want to say exclusively female, but the consistent members there were almost all women. Okay. There were, I would say, I mean, I can remember, I mean, the group changed periodically because it was an open group, so people would come and go. Okay. So um, at least the formal group that I attended. So I think there may have been, over the course of that, three men and uh, other than myself, and probably about 15 to about 15 or so women over the course of the time it you know came and goes some for just once or twice and, and some for longer was that uncomfortable being the minority as the you know the males well it was different um I, i'll just say that i i don't know if i used to think it was uncomfortable or not i'd just say it was different there were some some issues i felt a little self-conscious because, um, you know, I mean, I'm 70 years old. People react differently when they're, especially opposite gender people, react differently when men are there or women are there and they're, whatever. They react differently to one another. And um, so th there was some discomfort. But the other feelings were just so overwhelming that other than giving it a thought, at least as I look back at it now, I don't recall there being, you know, an overwhelming sense of discomfort, or I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have gone back, you know, which I did. Um, you said the other feelings were the other feelings were so overwhelming. What are you referring well, to? Well, the feelings of grief, the feelings of loss, the feelings of uncertainty, the lack of identity. I mean, the, um, you know, I mean, to me, to me in my life. I mean, I never had really close, intimate friends because of the type of work I did. It was just really wasn't that possible. Because um, you can't work your talk your work into your normal conversation. You know, people are, eh, I don't want to hear that. So, um, um, so, yeah, it was the way I was seen through the eyes of my peers, other professionals, and Catholics. So I lost the, the mirror that the... Uh, the mirror of my peers and other professionals, you know, which, you know, the judges, the other lawyers I dealt with, the law enforcement people I dealt with, um, and Kathy, who on the on an intimate scale was the only person that really knew what I was like, you know. So um all that was gone. So I um I think maybe one of the main Main advantages to going group to the group was being getting a sense of self. Mm. Um, and early in the group, of course, and want to present yourself as best as possible. Um, I, I tell you, for example, earlier early on, uh, I could not say out loud that I had been a suspect. That it that that was just I couldn't say that out loud, um, but. Everyone there had lost their spouse under very traumatic and sudden circumstances. And as I heard them talk about how they were treated as suspects and how they were interviewed by the police and things like that, you know, it just eased my mind. I don't want to say my mind. It just made it easier for me 
because just realizing that you know that wasn't the character flaw of me that was just the way the the world works it's just the way it was and all these people went through that so that was very um you know easing but anyway I, I may be talking too much, but, no, no. but that's that's what initially out of the group I got um, was the ability to to uh, see myself through the eyes of others, and also look at by seeing. Well, I just saw my a lot of myself reflected in what the others were saying, and yeah. it was and it, it was just it in most cases proved valuable to me. Like every group, there were some people there that I didn't identify with too much and clearly had issues unfortunately for them that far exceeded uh their grief issues um but uh on the whole it was good for me i will say i would think i was probably almost everyone in that group unfortunately for them was young enough to be my child i'm, I'm trying to think if there was with the one male exception, it came very briefly. Everyone there, everyone in the group, could have been my child, a couple of my grandchildren. So. I'm so glad you're talking about this and how, you know, you were male and there weren't as many males and that you were older and people were younger and that there were some people that you didn't click with but that you were still able to get something out of the experience. And I do know it was a very meaningful experience for you because I think, you know, a grief group can be so powerful in our healing experience. And um, I just think you described it so eloquently what you did benefit from. I also know that you developed a strong bond with a core group of some of the members from your first group and that you've really integrated them into your life in like, I almost want to say a unique way. Um, and they've become like family. Do you want to talk about that? I will say, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, some of the people I met through the grief group are probably the only outside of, um, you know, I was married once before, as you know, um, my wife's the only intimate relationships, I've really intimate relationships I've ha had in my life in which I feel very, I don't want to say comfortable, but I feel safe um, just sharing who I really am and what I'm really about with. Um, and I have integrated them, but uh, it's been incredible. And, you know, I really... And to show how one person can make a difference, there is one person in the group who actually, I think it was only her second time there. All of us had been doing this, you know, the remainder of the people that are my small group, you know, chatting and talking. And once in a while, you know, exchanging looks on our Zoom meeting. And one of them just said, do you guys ever get together? Would you ever consider like getting together in person and for breakfast or a meeting or something like that? And none of us ever had. So immediately she put it together. We met. And so that small group of us that, you know, there were initially seven of us, um, just um, a few more came, a few more left. But we've formed a really solid core of six people 
that are in each other's lives every day in some way. Um, you know, we get together at least once a week for dinner. Often, you know, we go places. We took a cruise together um, at... Uh, it's just, it helps, you know, at night or whenever, when you're really feeling bad, um, you know, to have someone that you know you can reach out to. And I'll say this, I've not yet reached out to any of them in the middle of the night because I know they value their sleep. But it's not that I, it's, but I know I could if I needed to. Just yeah. knowing that they're there if I if I need them. And I, I we've talked about this a lot. I know the feeling is mutual. Just knowing that they're there, that support and that love is there. It's just, um, I, it's just made a huge difference in in my life. Um, I don't know where I would be or how things would have gone had you know I not bonded with with these people. And um, you know, my biggest fear is is you know they're all young. They'll all go get married and do, you know find some other spouse, and I'll be one of those senior citizens in the assisted living facility that's begging with high school kids to come and chat with me, you know, just for company. But uh, I don't think that's going to happen. And I've told them that too. So they're always allaying my concerns, but um, no, they've, so yeah, they are a major, major part of, major part of my life, the, the group. Well, I know you've taken a lot of risks and become vulnerable and um, it's really paid off for you. So we've talked before about grief being long-term. How would you characterize or describe your grief today in the beginning of 2024? Well, you know, okay, it's, as you know, it's like eight days from three years right now. And I was just, I just went to breakfast with one of my friends from the group this morning and um, grief is long-term and the grief is as strong and sometimes stronger than it was in the immediate aftermath. And then it has been in other times. The, um, so I, I hope that's not discouraging in, in t because it's encouraging in one way my ability to deal with it has changed a lot. I, I, it doesn't become overwhelming. It's not debilitating. So I don't mean it, it, that my grief is debilitating when I say it's stronger. I just mean that I just miss capping a lot. Yeah. I love you too, Shared. I've been um, very honored to witness it and getting to know you. Yeah. What advice would you give to somebody else? Who <laughs> Like I could give advice to anybody. 
Yes, you could. You could give some amazing advice. Oh, I don't know about that. Mm, um, I do. What advice would you give to somebody else who's experienced a sudden or unexpected death at a time that actually coincides with retirement? I mean, both of those at the same time, such a interaction that is so powerful. Well, I feel exceedingly unqualified to give any type of advice, but I will say what helped me and what still helps me is one, just maintaining a core group of people, whoever they are, wherever you find them, that you can trust and that you can feel safe with. Um, I, I just needed to find a safe place. It just, just had to have one. And I, so that would be one piece of advice. Um, easier said than done, I guess. Um, and the other thing that I, that I did that, I don't know if I did, if I'm responsible for this or not, but I reached out a lot to people and I didn't withdraw. Um, I reached out to people. I initiated contacts with people that I hadn't had contact with in a long time. Some of them felt very uncomfortable with me doing that. And those came to nothing, um, which is okay. Others did not. Um, but I, I, I would say find just finding safe people is most was the most important thing I did. And just, um, like I said, I'm not qualified. I, I just feel so uncomfortable doing this. Finding you, finding counseling. You know, I think I told you I went through four counselors. I, well, simultaneously, um, including the Shishi Fufu one who happened to be you. Um, you know, that new age stuff. But want the people that do gongs and play music before they're. I do not play gongs and music. And not that I think that there's anything wrong with that. I think that can be incredibly powerful, but that's in not my head. I, in my head, I heard that. Okay. Uh, but that's not how I would characterize myself. No, I, w- I, I was just. very I was, powerful for some people. Okay, everyone, I was being facetious to an extent. <laughs> but, but I have told you that you did seem a little uh, new age for me uh, at times. But, but um, the real important thing early on was finding techniques to deal with with the grief, how the deal with the coping to slow slow things down to where I could actually do things. I mean, it was just so debilitating, and I was just so hopelessly lost in terms of you know what to do. And as you know, we've talked about, or maybe we didn't. Um, you know, I didn't really feel much like living. You know, I, there was no way I was going to commit suicide. I never thought of taking my own life, but I can honestly say I really didn't give a shit, you know, one way or the other. It just really didn't matter to me, which just means a lot of other things in your life. Go to hell. You know, I had three children. I had seven grandchildren. Um, So, you know, I, I, 
needed to be something for them as well. So, um, you know, finding people I felt safe with, including, you know, therapy to the extent I could afford it and, and attend it, I think were the things that stopped the spiral of, I, I don't know, people call it going over the edge or off over the, in the abyss and down the rabbit hole or whatever. But um, yeah, just hanging on to people and relationships really have been the big, big thing for me that have helped. And trust me, I did not like doing that. Like I told you, I had no intimate friends before Kathy died other than Kathy. I mean, we had friends that we socialized with and we saw, but there was no one that I would, you know, share my innermost thoughts, you know, or innermost feelings with other than Kathy. There just weren't. And um, so okay. I don't know if that's very good advice. I think it's amazing advice. Dan, thank you so much for your vulnerability, your honesty today, and sharing truly from your heart. So appreciative of your time, wisdom, and your your heart. Well, you're welcome. Thank you for your help. Just like all of my podcast participants, Dan's experiences were powerful and unique. With an extensive background in law enforcement, Dan provided us with valuable insight about what happens during the investigative process. He also invited us into the different thoughts and emotions that he struggled with and continues to revisit in his mind three years after his wife's death. I'm so grateful he shared his perspective on the ins and outs of a spousal grief support group and the lasting relationships that can develop. The love that Dan continues to have for his wife, Kathy, remains present and palpable. I want to thank him so much for his time and his willingness to share his story with us today. If you'd like to reach out to Dan, please join our Facebook group talking about the podcast Untethered with Dr. Levin. Please join me for my next podcast interview on February 28th when I interview Leslie Koritsky, whose husband died suddenly 14 years ago. Leslie shares what it was like to raise her young children and how she coped with the unexpected legal and financial stressors she faced after her husband's death. We also talk about the things that she's implemented in her life to help her develop a long-term relationship with her grief. To learn more about hope and guidance after a sudden or unexpected death, please visit therapyheals.com and sign up for my monthly newsletter, Guidance in Grief, at www.therapyheals.com. Bye for now. Thank you for listening today. Be sure to subscribe to my podcast so you never miss an episode. For guidance and hope with unexpected or sudden death, please visit my website, www.therapyheals.com to learn more about the services we offer. If you would like to share your story on our podcast, 
in service of helping others heal after a sudden or unexpected death, please email us at info at therapyheals.com.